Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, October 15, 2013, and this is episode 1228 of the Survival Podcast. And I'm bringing back one of our uh, prior guests, a guy that's really switched on, Sam Kaufman, founder and director of a survival school in Central Texas called The Human Path. We're going to discuss a huge, varied array of subjects today. Before we do, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is Sawtooth Tactical. All the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle is available at Sawtooth Tactical. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, nestled in the Sawtooth wilderness of Idaho. And I mean everything from Magpul magazines, Maxpedition bags, and everything in between, including the awesome, the manly, the titanium spork. Yes, the titanium spork probably has as much value in titanium in it as the, the thing costs. It's so big and manly. I'm just kidding there, except it is cool. Uh, but there you can just, if you can think of the tactical implement, you will find it at SawTac with great pricing and great service from a veteran owned and operated company. Uh, and you guys that are me uh, members of the support brigade, you do get a discount. Make sure you check the benefits area before you order from SawTac. Next up today, ready made resources. What more can you ask for from a company? Their name is what they do, and then they do what they say they do. All the resources you need for your prepping, ready-made, ready-to-go, point-click buy on their website. Great pricing, lightning-fast shipping, and amazing service available for ready-made resources. And with larger purchases, you can even get some free silver if you're an MSB member. Check your Members Brigade area again for information on that before ordering from ready-made resources. Last but not least, do consider joining that Member Support Brigade. You'll get discounts like the two I just mentioned, and from almost... 40 vendors, and I think it's actually a few more than 40 vendors. Working on new ones for you all the time. Got a couple cool things coming for you in the next week once I get out from under this huge avalanche of stuff I'm dealing with, you know, backing a um, a workshop right up against a vacation and a speaking engagement. So I'm still digging out now. I'll have it all dug out soon, and we'll uh, get some new stuff for you into the Members Brigade. But even right now, it's a great deal. It's a membership program that pays for itself. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMPs, EMPs, no, EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, and other first responders. All of you guys qualify for a discount. Just email me with service discount in the subject line, and in one or two sentences, tell me who you are and what you're doing, or what you did if you're a prior service, and I'll get back to you with a discount code to save you more money on an already great product. And remember, do that before, not after you join. Uh, with all that wrapped up, let me now introduce uh, Sam Kaufman. I first met Sam uh, through Marjorie Wildcraft. I was at a course of his where we were building uh, primitive traps, and he was teaching us to throw hunting sticks and all. I'll tell you the kind of guy he is. So he sets up this stuff just kind of as an afterthought with some throwing sticks, and he's teaching us to use throwing sticks to knock birds out of trees and things like that. And he sets up these targets, and uh, I'm sitting there, and I'm just tearing these targets up. I mean, it's just I grew up throwing sticks at stuff. So, I mean, it was just... Bam, and just knocking the crap out of him. And he goes, that's really good. Now try this. Now crouch there for 10 minutes without moving and then throw the stick without getting up. Wasn't quite so easy. That's the kind of trainer he is. He puts you into what he calls scenario-based training. Not just can you throw the stick, but if you were actually waiting in ambush, could you pull it off then? And that's what he's here to talk to us about today, among some other really great things. And with that, hey, Sam, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Well, thank you, Jack. Thanks very much for having me back. It's great to be here, and uh, it's always great, as always, to talk with you and see what you've got going on, and, and there's a bit of time span since the last time we talked. Absolutely, man. So for folks that maybe didn't hear your first interview before we get into our topic of choice today, which is scenario-based training, can you tell people a little bit about yourself, what you do as a daily, you know, daily living now, and how you got there? Because I think, like most people, you probably didn't get there in a straight line. Yeah, boy, that's true. Man, I tell you, if there was ever a crooked line, it was mine. And, you know, I go back and forth from different things. So I've been in the, uh, I, I, what I usually tell people is I've been in the military, ten, you know, was spent 10 years in the military, and that had a lot to do with where I'm at now. That's true, but honestly, I was doing survival based, you know, things I didn't think of as that, but survival based type skills from the time I was about five years old because we had a family that lived 
out in the woods about three months out of the year every summer because my dad was a geologist and we'd go to these places where you could only go in by horseback. And so, so that was kind of part of my upgrowing, upbringing anyway. But in the military, I was, uh, I was in twice. I was in the first time as an interrogator and then I was a linguist. I worked on what was then the east-western border with what you would call human or human intelligence gathering. Worked in, uh, in terms also not just in that regard as liaison and translator, but also um, creating a lot of the curriculum for what, what we consider SEER school or survival evasion resistance escape training. And then uh, after that, I got out, got a degree in linguistics, got, went back into special forces. And so I was in special forces. I was an 18 Delta and a, a, a special forces medic. And at that time, literally about the same time I went into SF medic school, I was very seriously interested in plant plant medicine anyway. In fact, I almost had to make a decision between whether to go to Chinese medicine school, which back then wasn't quite as much a fad or, you know, as it is now, but it was just starting to become fairly well known in, in our culture or special forces medicine. You know, it seems like a big jump, but really what, it, what I realized was that if I wanted to go back into and study medicine of any type, that it was essential to learn trauma and sort of the basics of what do you do in, in emergency situations before moving on from, from to anything else. And so what I ended up doing, long story short, uh, was, was being able to, to look at what I was learning, uh, you know, as, as a medic, as a special forces medic, and combine the best of that world with what I felt was important from the standpoint of plant medicine and using you know, the, the stuff around us because I was out there in the middle of nowhere, you know, with, with a, a 12-man team with the stuff I had on my back and, you know, the, the pharmaceuticals I had, or maybe if we were lucky, we could get dropped in. And, you know, I'd say, well, this is great, but what if we can't do anything further than this? What if we don't have any more supplies? Then what? And so, you know, if that question kind of grew, became kind of flowered, and I never really, you know, really, it was just an ongoing process, and I never looked back from there. And so what I've done since then is really integrate that whole concept that I learned back in Special Forces with the team the team concept and the four, four specialties there, actually five specialties if you count leadership, and integrated it into a way that I felt was really applicable to not just civilian life, but civilian life from the standpoint of the survival of our species. And, and we would call that preparedness, I suppose, or preppers, or whatever term you want to give to it. But I tried, I spent literally, oh gosh, probably 17, 18 years on this concept of what would those look like, you know, and, and it really went to my own life. What was most important for me to learn? And so I came up and started organizing with my own uh, skills that I had, had acquired up to that point in life, which include medical, it included hunting, gathering, and, and primitive skills. It included some primitive engineering and problem solving, it, and you know communications, combo things like that as well. And then also included scout or what we would call. I spent a lot of time in the military and in, in uh, special forces doing recon, and so a lot of the whole concept of not just scouting, but but thinking while you're scouting and actual social engineering and figuring out what's your what's around you, being the eyes and the ears of your team. And so from that standpoint, I put together sort of the structure of what my school has been now for the last you know 15 or 17 years uh, under the un, as that and worked on those concepts and tried to not just create the breadth of it, but now really define the depth of it because every single specialty can drill down into so much, so many layers of depth of skill. And, and our primary concept in the school really is to teach the skill and then teach it under duress and then take it out and put it in the real world. And so because of that, I ended up starting and found co-founding a, a, a nonprofit organization called Herbal Medics. And so what that was was a chance for us to take all of these skills that we learn, which are it's primitive engineering and learning how to make a slow sand filter or learning how to create 12-volt you know, power from a bicycle or you know, water pump from a bicycle or you know, set up, a, set up a, a salvage antennas for ham radio or CB radio or whatever, all the way to the medic side of it and setting up an herbal clinic where you're seeing 100 people a day coming in. They walk for 20 miles to be able to get to your clinic, all the way to being able to uh, be the hunter-gatherer side on the urban side, which is creating sustainable food solutions, you know, creating, teaching people how to grow their own food how to grow their own medicine, how to compost, what the different aspects of their specific flora and fauna and ecology are in that area, all the way to the scout, the advanced team that goes into an area and finds out what, that, what those people really need, not what we think they need, but what they actually need and communicate with them face-to-face, -face, learning the language, learning the culture, understanding what they need from the standpoint of what our team can provide. And so this, the, so the, the nonprofit Herbal Medics gave me a chance to actually create a working 
real world, um, you know, I guess you could say sandbox almost in some ways for my students to be able to go and actually do it under duress, places we cannot drive to, they have to walk to, we have to canoe to, whatever it might be. And, and live sort of like the, sort of like the civilian version of special forces. In fact, in 2015, I'm going to require my core team gets class B skydiving certified so that we can jump into some of these areas. And my scouts learn how to set up DZ so we can drop in some of our own gear and our own equipment for the purpose of being able to, to really be able to function in a, in a post disaster situation where you might be the only ones who can get in and set up a clinic and set up water purification and set up power and combo and all those kinds of things. And that gave my that gave the structure and the final kind of the, the the head of the spear, you know, to the entire school to be able to really say, okay, not only are we doing it in the classroom, and then we're taking it outside and we're doing hands-on, and then we're taking it to scenario because we do tons of scenarios. I have you know, I pay role players. We have incredibly good uh, scenario type setups, but then we take it to the next level, which is, can you really do this when it really counts in the real world? And by the time those students come back here. It's like, oh, there's no pure water, you know, no purified water. Well, hey, you know, been there, done that, yawn. I'm going to go ahead and set up my slow sand filtration or whatever it is that I'm familiar with in dealing with this. And I've probably done 10 or 15 different variations of this based upon what I've got for salvage and what I've taught other people to do. And it creates what I consider, you know, really the full, the completely fully realized student when I'm done. So that, in a nutshell, is kind of how I went from point A to point Z with where we're at now. (laughs) That's awesome. Can we let's let's get a little bit into this because you just kind of touched on it there at the end. The scenario uh, based training and and how that can make a difference for people that want to learn preparedness skills. I mean, it's one thing to go out and learn to do a friction fire. It's another thing to you know go out and learn to do a friction fire where you're going to be freaking cold if you don't pull it off and everything's kind of damp and it's just the way the real world works. And maybe you should have brought your ferrocium rod, but you didn't, and now you're stuck with that's the way to do it and that's all you've got. Um, it, that's just one example. Though I mean, how uh, by taking things into the scenario world versus just the skill development world, uh, can we really benefit? You? Yeah, that's a great question. I, so I think that what we do, and I learned this also in the military, was that you know until you have that adrenaline that forces you to have to react and and see how you react, and until you're a little bit sleep deprived and hungry and cold and wet and thirsty, you really don't know how you're going to act. So underlying this all to kind of answer the question underlying everything i i teach from what i can i've just kind of coined this term the four a's to survival that i that i have looked at over years and years of, of looking at how people act and those are attitude awareness adaptability and accountability and and those are sort of the the underlying you know uh what you would call i don't know concepts underneath the whole the the physical constructs and so the way that we can actually test those things like attitude and awareness and adaptability and accountability is by putting people into scenario. There's no other way. You can't, you can't teach somebody really to be adaptable. You just have to teach them some skills and then you give a whole pile of junk and throw it into a pile and say, okay, make me this or make me that or here's what you've got to do. And it's raining and it's cold and it's wet and it's all those types of things like you just mentioned. So what we do, uh, for instance, we have our in order to even enter into the program through the core program, you have to take what I call our core basic. And there we have a wilderness core basic and we have an urban core basic. What I didn't mention about those four specialties is there's a wilderness and an urban component to each of those. And they're two totally separate things, although there's overlap, they're two totally separate things. So, for instance, in about two or three weeks, we start our urban core basic part one. And it's 50 hours. We do two three-day weekends. So it's 50 hours and, and divided into two. And the first thing that happens is they come out and we first we park or teach a little bit about security and we say okay look we are here now in an, in an area i have 50 acre campus basically but it's an old rock quarry and so i say okay let's just assume that this is just kind of a hideout this is a spot and we're all thrown together in a post-disaster you know no rule of law kind of environment how would we first of all how would we just secure the area we're in right now just by parking our cars you know so we start off with that we talk a little bit about security and, and the concept of a perimeter and then we and then we go in we talk a little bit about shelter and some of the primary components of just making your own shelter well i have uh, piles of old junk trash like you know um uh, lumber and and tires and things you know the, the those tarps things like that and i spread them out over about five acres of of kind of you know the, the quarry land the, the open kind of sand area and i say okay that's your shelter down there the first thing we're going to do is talk about how we organize a group of people and and what things go into that and then you're going to go ahead and build shelters out of what you've learned that's your adaptability so my point is to the whole scenario thing is that allows us to throw 
all of everything that they've learned into an environment where there really is no predicting what the outcome is going to be exactly because that's the way life, well, life works. You know, and anybody who works in emergency medicine, anybody who ever is, is a fighter, you know, like say mixed martial artist or, or, you know, or even, you know, worse back in the days of actual fighting or certainly our, our military troops, you know, fighting in, in actual combat know that you cannot predict the outcome of any of these of these scenarios no matter what real life scenarios no matter how much you train and so the whole po- concept of scenario is to create that same environment where you really can't predict the outcome but it's still safe you know before we go to the real world let's just do something where it's still safe and that is a huge kind of stepping stone between hands-on training and real world training and i think that most People don't understand that or get that until they've actually gone through our courses and seen it. And then they come back around. And then there's a fifth specialty that I didn't mention in there, and that is teamwork and leadership. So in the scenario is where teamwork and leadership really starts to happen. And what I'll do a lot of times, depending on the length of the scenario, is I'll switch up leadership every every major task that's been completed. It might take an hour or three hours. And I'll say, okay, you're no longer leader. Now you're leader. Now what are the first things that a new leader does? You know, okay, well, first you get a briefing from the old leader. Second, and, and at, the, at the same time, you pick your two IC. And then you figure out if you're going to subdivide down and if you're going to change, uh, you know, the way that you've got the teams, your, your sub team set up right now, if, it's, if that's going to work for you or not. We take out Camo. You know, there's no radios allowed to begin with, to start with, because I think you have to get understand what communication is for first before you start making it easy for people so that so just by taking out all the tools and taking out all the the ease and the you know the good you know kind of the care bear side of things that you have to do in the in the, in the hands-on and in the lecture um, people start to wake up really fast you know they really they really start to get it what what's the effect of this kind of training on students as far as their skills or teamwork and sense of community i mean this actually meshes very well with something i was talking about yesterday that's always frustrated in my life i call it the person who can't follow the chicken soup re- recipe if they don't have the parsley. People get into this mode where they know I'm supposed to do this, they've been given a directive, but if one thing's not there, they just kind of stop. And, and I've never understood this, Sam. I mean, this is something that I, I'm sure the military had an impact on it because you train this way in the military. But even as a kid, and I guess it's because I was always out fishing and hunting and having to make do, that if I ever got to a place where I don't have something, i just like figure out, well, what works for that? But it seems to me that a lot of people, and I'm not talking about dumb people or lazy people, just a lot of people have this mental roadblock where as soon as they get to something, they don't have something, they just kind of sit there and look at it. And to me, this is one way to kind of break that cycle. I agree, and it goes back to that adaptability idea. There was, um, I actually was born in uh, Spokane, Washington, and, and lived there for the first 11 years of my life. And I remember there, there's an air base there. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but they used to do, that was back in the day when most bases actually did their own SEER, their survival evasion resistance escape training, and they would do for their pilots, they did kind of their own survival training. And so I remember growing up, because my parents joked about this for, for a year or so after it happened, this air base said, hey, we're going to put out the word to civilians, anybody who wants to come out can apply, and we'll put you through our survival training, and you can, it was one of those kind of PR things, it was like, see how you match up to our flyboys kind of thing, right? So, so they picked purposely probably some people that they figured would do really poorly and one of the people they picked was this woman who was about a 45 year old housewife and back then they were really housewives right you know i mean that's all she did she had like five or six kids that she'd raised and she just cleaned the clock man she just like she tore it up everybody she she destroyed all of these these uh, airmen in the same task because she was able to she understood how to adapt you know she had to uh, you know clean dirty diapers with one hand while answering the phone while making sure a kid wasn't running out in the street or whatever it was that she did she just naturally kind of learned to do that and that, and and I think that that's something that you can only learn again by putting people into these situations and you find that people that are very kind of thoughtful and intellectual uh, will will be a little slower starters it's true but everybody gets it I think I've never had anybody well I'll take that back there's a few people that just you know they can't take it and they walk out that is very rarely I mean we get like over a 90% return rate on our students but but in, in the grow the uh, I would say the massive amount of students that are out there no matter what their background is they start to get it and once that light goes on you start seeing them thinking out of the box everywhere. It, then all of a sudden, well, it's like learning how to start a fire with a lens, you know? Once you learn how to start a fire with a lens, one time, you will see lenses everywhere. You'll see them on the bottom of wine glasses. You'll see, the, you'll see a, you know, sure. taking a condom and fill it with water, the whole thing. I mean, everything is a lens. And so it's sort of that type of thing happens. Yeah, it's definitely a switch. But it makes me think of, remember the movie um, Apollo 13? 
where they needed to make the air cleaner fit a hole that it didn't fit. And the guy just walks in and just throws all this crap on a table and goes, okay, this has to go in that hole with what's here. And there was like, there's no, people are going to die if we don't do this. And you can't use something else and you got to make it work. And the funny thing was, even though everybody kind of looked at it initially like, you can't do that. They were smart people, and when they were put in that real-world scenario where life was really on the line, they did it. That's right. And I think also a lot of times what people tend to do is um, overthink things and, and not think of the most simple uh, the simplest answers a lot of times are your best. What I used to do a long time ago when I first started some of the problem-solving things, we do, I do races like survival races where people have to not only negotiate obstacles and you know, like mud runs and stuff, but also have to actually do something in that specialty. So if you're doing a combat medic specialty, you're going to be some tactics. You're going to be taking care of people under fire. And, you know, we use air guns and air, airsoft mostly and that kind of thing. But, but, you know, that'll be your type of task. And for primitive engineers, you know, you might stop and you're really tired and now you got to solve a problem and I remember once I used to have this big wooden crate that weighed I filled it with sand and I think the whole thing probably weighed about 400 or 500 pounds uh, and I had a couple, like one pipe there and then I had a bunch of round rocks but they were scattered all over the place you had to look to find them but they were there and it wasn't like they were mixed in piles I mean you could see, if you just went and looked even five minutes you'd find you know 20 or 30 of them and that was the answer you know if you can get this up on the rocks you know you can push this one person could push the entire thing the entire length and it was like a hundred yards you know, in a matter of five minutes. But instead, people would use the one lever and the one pole, and they'd spend, you know, like an hour on this thing instead of just finding the simple answer. So a lot of times, I guess my point is, is those simple answers are really the ones that, that people start to, to look for and open their mind to as they start having to just do it over and over again. And they make a mistake, and they go back and they, oh, I didn't even think of that. And the next time around, I guarantee you, they're thinking more They're simplicity. looking for that, right? They're going, yeah. okay, what's, what's, what are my tools? Because you always have tools, whether you realize it or not. And, and what is the shortest distance between A and B? How do I make this happen with as little risk, as little pain uh, as possible? Because um, I think what happens sometimes with training is, in some situations, you set things up that are painful and difficult. So the mind gets switched on to that being the way, and that's just to teach you know, overcoming adversity. In the real world, you don't really want to take the longest course or the most risky course, because if you get hurt... You know, navigating between two points, you're not in good shape to defend yourself when you get where you're going. That's right, and I and I think overall, what I've if I've learned nothing else throughout my life, I've learned that simple is always best, and that includes just a, that includes a street fight, that includes fixing a you know a wound. Like a lot of people come into my my, I do a whole herbology. I do a shit hits the fan for. I'm sorry, so this is you can podcast, say that here. So, okay, this is yeah. this is not mainstream radio. <laughs> right. Okay. It so happens yeah. every day. I promise you. <laughs> Great. So anyway, yeah, so I do an SHTF herbalism class specifically for preppers. I do a, a an herbal uh, wilderness herbal first responder class that is that is you know 90 hours over 10 days and I do so aside from my main you know herbology classes and I do online courses and stuff like that too but aside from that I do a lot of classes that are specifically um, related to post-disaster herbalism, post-disaster plant medicine, but the core of that really is wilderness first aid type of stuff. And you know, people kind of think all oh, first aid, and they, you know, that's like putting a you know bandaid on a on a scratch. And it's not. It's saving people's lives. It's the concept of the medic. You might be taking care of that person for one hour, for one day, for one week, or for one year. You don't know. So learn from the very beginning. And so uh, you find these simplest concepts are most important in, in herbalism, too. People say, well, you know, there's all these different types of plants that stop bleeding. It's like, well, yeah, but, you know, we want to clean the wound first. That's the main thing. And then bandaging is what stops the bleeding. Compression bandage is what's going to stop that bleeding. If that doesn't, then a tourniquet is what's going to have to stop that bleeding. You can throw all of the wound clot on it, whether it's, whether it's herbs or whether it's the, the chemical stuff, and it isn't going to do you any good, for any good at all because you're going to have to eventually clean that wound out and let it heal anyway. So stop the bleeding. That's the simple. So you see a lot of that kind of, you know, com- making things more complicated because more complicated must mean it's better when really, you know, the simplest in medicine and fighting and survival and, and, and preparedness, all of those things, simplest is usually by far the best answer. I completely agree with that. Now, on plant medicine, uh, actually, I want to back up a second because you run a school and there's a lot of great information available today. DVDs, books, and YouTube is a treasure trove of good, bad, and dangerous. You gotta how to filter YouTube because anybody can throw anything up there. And there's some stuff you look at and go, no, 
But you, you know, people do have to make their own determinations. But you're a big believer in this hands-on training. Um, why do you think it's important for people to take that step and go to a school environment versus just doing it on their own and using these other support mechanisms? Yeah, that's such a great question. And if I had a dime for every time somebody said, oh, I've done that, I know that, and then completely failed when they actually had to do it, <laughs> I was just, um, I was just a, a co, um, sort of a co-coordinator, uh, a, co- a contractor for Fuego y Agua, which is this race company that does these really intense survival races. And I mean intense, like they'll have a 100k 100 kilometer race in the in the uh, on the island of Omotepe over the volcanoes and the jungles and stuff the last one they had out of 100 people only two finished and these are people who have to apply to get into it in the first place they have to say yes I've done ultra marathons yes I've done mud runs you know to them doing these like a spartan beast is is nothing i mean that's just that's a warm up so so these are people who really have some serious fitness i did a training a weekend for a lot of them down at my school to get them ready for the survival run which was not just all of that, uh, all of the obstacles and the intense bushwhacking type of run. It wasn't just on trails. It was, you know, through the bush. Um, uh, in addition to that, they had to start a friction fire. They had to make cordage. They had to make a throwing stick and hit a target. They had to make a primitive bow. Well, one of the last things they had to do was they had to make a travois, you know, the old, uh, old like Indian travois, and they had to carry uh, a bunch of rocks. They had to carry about 120 pounds of rocks up this very steep, like an 18% grade of rough, terrain and that travois had to hold together so they had to learn some lashings and some good lashings not just crap you know but really good lashings and understand how to put the how to how to put the weight on there is a very primitive and simple concept that i learned the hard way when i was going through special forces assessment and selection and we'll never forget you know certain principles that were absolutely necessary so anyway i you know i had a whole setup there for people as they came in because i didn't have time to make a youtube and i didn't have time to teach them that and i said look take your time Look at this travois that I've got made. I've got the whole thing set up. Look at the lashings. You can take them apart if you want. And again, I wish I had a dime for every guy that came in there. Not the women. You know, women were were like, oh, great, look, and they and they did great. But the guys, you know, one of them literally said, oh, I've done a hundred travois. I'll do that. He went out. I tell you what, man, he take like three steps. The bags would fall off. His travois would fall apart. He took it. He did that about three times, and finally he threw it down. He was only seven miles from the end of a 50k race, and he threw it down and started cussing and said, I'll, I'm done with this. You know, he was just at his he was at his breaking point after 18 hours of that, and it broke him. You know. So my point is that, yeah, you have to um, you have to get the hands on experience. You can't just learn the stuff on YouTube and and think you've got it. And and I'm not I don't have any problem with that. I love YouTube University. I think it's a great way for people to learn. Like you say, you got to filter it, but it's a yeah. great way to learn. And then you practice that stuff in Fort Living Room and Fort Backyard and get it down there. Then you come and you get somebody who can put you through some stress on it. You know, that's, that's what I always say is until you've done that, you really haven't practiced it. And here's how I feel as someone that does a lot of training myself, whether you're shooting a handgun, whether you're putting in a garden, whether you're trying to make a friction fire, when you're doing that and I'm acting as your trainer, I don't give a shit about your feelings. Right now, it doesn't mean I don't care about you as a person, but I don't care if you're angry or hurt or you feel like I've I've been mean to you or whatever. When you're doing it wrong, I will tell you. And when it doesn't work, I will make you face it. I wish people had the self-discipline to do that for themselves. But even I don't probably even you don't in certain situations. You convince yourself, oh, that's good enough. That third party standing there that's, that's done it before has observed it before, and has seen that mistake made before, will be honest with you beyond your own capability. Absolutely. You, you know, we see that with, um, as a very simple example of that, it's just the water purification. You know, people, they read through a slow sand filter. We talk about what it's all about, you know, and a lot of people come there and say, oh, I understand. I understand the concept of a filter cake and how it's a biological filter. And it's, you know, 99.9% filtration. It's amazing what you can do with a slow sand filtration, except that you're, you're limited to the volume that you can put through there. But other than that, it's a great, it's an amazing concept. And they'll say, well, I, I know all about that. And then we'll make one in a five-gallon bucket. That's not real. It's not. It's just not really – it's to scale, but it's not, not the full scale. And then they start seeing, oh, it's kind of difficult to actually do this without it leaking. And, and you know, so we talk about, like, you know, your bug-out kit. And I'm a big proponent of anything, anything kind of fasteners, whether they're glues or nails or, or cordage or whatever it is in a bug-out kit. And for me, shoe goo is, the, is kind of the ultimate bug-out, you know, um, glue. So we talk about that, and we'll make them use that instead of, like, PV 
PVC type glues and stuff. And so they'll put that together. It'll leak all over the place. It doesn't work. And they just, you know, but that's just a four hour or five hour class of an experiential class. Then when they actually have to do it, like in a level one primitive engineering course, or more importantly, when they actually are getting ready to go to Nicaragua or wherever we're going to go, man, they got to know that. And they have to know it really, really well. And they have had to fail three or four times and they will. And you think, well, how can you fail on something that simple? We'll do it. And you'll see you can fail every time, you know, because there's something you didn't figure out and didn't know. And so then when you're done with that, you know, and you failed a few times, then you then you're experienced and you got the wisdom to understand what it is that you don't know. And you and you and hopefully, you know, you you figured out what you do know and you put it all together and you end up with what I call workable experience. You can actually go out there and you can do it for real. And then if we, you know, it doesn't matter if somebody's shouting at you or doing whatever we do at the, in the core basic, I do in what I call the adrenaline drill. Cause we do a, a full morning of hand to hand and stick and knife type combat. And I'm not going to make anybody into a black belt, you know, off the street in four hours. But what I can teach them is the attitude of the fight. And then at the end of that, you know, I tell them, look, even you guys who've studied martial arts all your life, you know, and, and that's fine. But if, you know, there's a lot of, kind of martial arts disciplines out there that do really fancy things you know they're, they're very cool and there are a lot of small muscle manipulation things like that and that's great but man when you when you really somebody when you got that 350 pound biker on meth going you know he's going to tear your head off yeah what you've got is you've got two clubs at the end of your shoulders that's what you've got to work with your yeah. adrenaline turns all that other stuff off and so i do that i i am the you know i'm not 350 pounds fortunately but i do give them the that experience and they have to run and they're chased and they're yelled by other people and then by the time they get to me in the mat they're already tired and I'm taking them down and I'm beating on them and I'm yelling at them and so they have to use what they learned under adrenaline and so they find and I always say this that that, that superior attitude defeats, defeats superior technique every time. Now, if somebody has superior attitude and superior technique, then that's a problem. But in general, <laughs> in a street fight, you know, attitude will get you a long way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's you know, and I think that people, especially in combat. That, that get into like a specific martial art with certain rules and stuff in it actually get themselves into trouble in a real conflict because well you don't kick people in the knee yeah. well when a three hundred fifty pound guy's trying to kill you if he gives you an open shot at his knee when he has his weight on his forward foot guess where you kick him in the freaking knee I, this, there's no rule there there's no referee that's gonna like say you're wrong and the consequence of not acting isn't you lose the match it's might maybe you lose your life or worse. That's right, and I think a lot of that goes back to the adaptability side of things. If you can give people all those skills and you say, you know, knee kicks are good, uh, you know, throat strikes are okay, eye gouges <laughs> are fine, biting is good, all that stuff, and you say, this is your pile of stuff to build with, yeah. and now let's start a fight, because in a fight, anything can happen. And now, now you not only have to make those decisions, but you have to make them really fast. That's, that's how you tra- treat people or train people how to adapt and how to overcome in a fight, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of, like, back when I was in the military, we had all these manuals and things and things that were written in them about, you know, dealing with a sentry, if you had to silence a sentry and all. And I got a hold of the the Russians' version of one of our manuals and how they teach it, and I think it showed silencing a sentry, and it was like a stick figure, and the guy had, like, a freaking knife that looked like a sword, and he was just shoving it through the throat of the sentry. Like, straight on frontal, right through the esophagus. And my thought was, it's it's, it's blunt, it's to the point, but yeah, it'll shut you up. <laughs> yeah, leave it to the Russians, boy, I tell you. That's true. That's true. When we train with them with Airsoft, what they'll be doing is you'll be doing force-on-force engagement with Airsoft. And uh, while you're – so, the, you know, you got this guy standing by that's like the instructor. And while he's standing there and you're shooting at two guys with cover and concealment, this Russian dude's got a, bo- a bucket full of tennis balls. And it's not just you, it's both sides, both, both uh, adversaries. And he just starts chucking tennis balls at your head while you're in this airsoft engagement. And right. it gets you thinking because airsoft pellets sting a little bit, but when a 220-pound Russian hits you in the face with a tennis ball, that hurts. That's right, and I think where the value for that comes out in any in any combat situation is treat is teaching you not to have tunnel vision too. And then you so if you if you once you start opening up to other input or stimulus in this case a tennis ball coming at you you know now you've suddenly taken yourself out of just that tunnel vision people are shooting at me they're right in front of me and that's all i'm going to focus on and so it's it's one of many ways i think to start dealing with that which that's a huge that is really a one in my opinion in my opinion one of the biggest 
uh, hurdles to overcome, I think, for people when they start doing tactical training is teaching them how to see the whole field. And, and that means everything, the whole field of combat and the friendlies and, the, you know, everything. Because, you know, for, as you know, I'm sure friendly fire is such a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And then you take that out of daytime and put it into night and you've got an entirely new spectrum. I mean, honestly... A lot of the things, just a tiny tangent here, but a lot of the things that I do in my core basic, and especially in the primitive core basic, is just to get people comfortable with moving around in the middle of the woods and at night, you know, thick brush and not walking down the roads and not walking on trails and doing danger crossing, you know, as a, as a team and understanding all of that and just being comfortable with that. If they can just go home with that, they've already, then that's a win right there for me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so we've talked as we were leading out to this about all the things you've done with herbal stuff and what's your take on this? I mean, you know, you mentioned a bleed and there's plants that stop a bleed, but in the end, compression is the best thing to stop a bleed. And if basic compression doesn't work, you're looking at a tourniquet. Um, can plant medicine be as effective as, you know, what we think of as conventional medicine? Yeah. In fact, I think in many cases it's more so. And I, I'm proving this concept time and time again with our clinics down in Nicaragua. I run a student clinic here as part of my herbology school as well. And the kinds of people we get there are generally people who've been, they've, they've knocked at every door and they've been told, no, can't deal with it finally. You know, the, I mean, doctors given up on them and they're coming to us and we're not diagnosing, we're not treating, of course, and I'm making it that very clear. You have to be very careful with language. Herbalism is not a licensed practitioner. You know, we don't pay the bureaucrats and the the illegal drug cartel off, so we have to be very careful with our language. But the point is that, yes, they're not only just for chronic issues, which is what most people think of, but absolutely for acute type of issues. And I've I've spent years really working on issues like the uh, antibiotic resistance bacteria and and how do you deal with wound infection. And so, yeah, once we stop the bleeding, that's the first of four, depending on how you look at wound healing. And I like to kind of go to the classic four steps of wound healing, which are, you know, hemostasis and then inflammation and then proliferation and finally remodeling. And so once we get past the hemostasis phase of stopping that bleeding and start to move into inflammation and proliferation, and in that big spectrum of time, the big problem is going to be infection, especially in the field, especially in a post-disaster, you know, post-hurricane where everything is covered with sewage and salt water. Then we have to really look at what can we do with that. And yeah, the the short answer to to the question is, Absolutely. Cellulitis, strep throat, bacteria, uh, you know, gram positive, gram negative, viral, uh, protozoans, um, helminths, all of that, I believe, I don't believe, I've proven time and time again that there are herbal medicines that are absolutely effective. Now, not in, not applied in exactly the same way. It's not a one-to-one ratio. You can't just say, well, I was going to give you Cipro, so now I'm going to give you this. It's a much different way to look oh, at I'm how so body I'm so glad heals. you said that, Sam. I go berserk on what I call replacement therapy, which is you would have taken aspirin, so now take willow bark, because the approaches are not that, they're so vastly different from each other exactly. that if you go symptomatic, th- then you become convinced that this stuff doesn't really work. Exactly. And then you, and that's where most of the misnomers and the, and the miscommunications and unfortunately the media and the whole hype behind the consumer-based, what I call consumer-based folk fraud, when you go into the health food store, this is what you got, you know, with these companies that make a huge amount of money doing that. All of that is based off what you call replacement therapy. And I totally agree. I totally agree. So, yeah, you have to understand there's a different way. There, there is a, a, an a orthodox physiology, <laughs> you know, which is very important. And then there's an herbal physiology to the body. And so, you know, this is very important that you, that you understand that. And the advantage we get from herbs is working with tissue state directly. So that means we have to get the herb in contact with the tissue wherever we can generally. That means if we're working with the mucosa of the back of the throat with a strep throat back, uh, infection, I have have and many times and can at any time work with strep throat and to, and help the body recover so that it can heal itself. I'm not healing the body. I'm not treating it, but the body is actually treating itself because of the support that I give the mucosa and the submucosa, understanding what those actual cells do. What does a goblet cell actually do? How does the physiology of the throat and the mucosa in that area work in the upper respiratory uh, system or tract? And then what are the herbs and why and what order would I give them in? So there's a huge dynamic there. I have doctors in my classes. I have uh, NPs, PAs in my classes. I work with a doctor, in fact, a functional medicine doc who sends me some of her patients. So, so there's a definite 
there's a definite way that these two work can work together, no doubt, and and side by side. And it's not a competition. But you know, if you if you said tomorrow all pharmaceuticals are gone, you know, and and that could very yeah. well happen, right? I yeah. mean, and even if they weren't, even if you stopped, is your all, access to them gone? That's that's what I exactly. try to get across to people all the time. It doesn't matter if. Two towns over, as they used to say, and you know, town speak. There's all the penicillin and amethromycin and everything else in the world you could want. If you can't get to it, it might as well, for your purposes, be gone for everybody. That's absolutely right. And another thing that a lot of people don't realize is as soon as you start worrying about what you've got stockpiled, you've got two issues. One is your level of skill. The second is you are now in a in a in a mode of having to ration out no matter what you think every time you use that you're in ration mode and it, it, it could be for the people you planned it could be for people you didn't plan you know it could be for the pregnant neighbor who comes over has a two-year-old child that's going to and she's going to die if they can't get some of the antibiotics and you've only got a certain amount whatever that might be and secondly and or the first one i said that's so important is the skill level if you don't even understand the difference between an allergic or an or, or, or an anaphylactic reaction to a certain type of antibiotic antibiotic versus the the fact that it's actually working or know what to look for and you haven't used it and don't have the training, then, you know, we're in sketchy territory there as opposed to plant medicine where, number one, it's it's a little kinder and gentler and, and that means it's not necessarily as effective for acute stuff. But, but as I tell everybody, plant medicine goes on the range between a power food and poison. And so most of the stuff I tend to use is more up towards the poison side. So it's drop dosages, it's things understanding I need to be very careful. This is going to be something they're taking for two or three weeks and no more, whatever that may be. Understanding that and learning that is a lot easier to do for the standard layman, in my opinion, because you have a chance to use it every day if you want to, versus if you want to actually learn how to do surgery or even in, even just do some sutures or prescribe antibiotics, you know, guess what? You've got, uh, you've got either a nurse or, or, or med school or PA or whatever it might be in thousands of tens of thousands of dollars of training before you can really do that competently. And you mentioned simplicity earlier, and I think it's really important that people understand that not everything has to be taken to the extreme level. I know very young in life, my, I remember my grandfather having this cut on his finger that he just didn't take care of, and it looked pretty bad. And I remember him just kind of getting up, grissy old man, saying, yeah, i got to do something about this. And he walks out, he picks up a couple pieces of plantain leaf, puts it on there and wraps it on with a Band-Aid, and I remember how much better it looked in two days. So that became like, okay, this is something that's useful for stings, for cuts, for scratches. And that's not necessarily life-saving, but it can be, because in these scenarios where you don't have access to what we typically take for granted, the risk of infection from something that would otherwise be superficial is much higher. And knowing something simple like this works for that or what you can do with comfrey or calendula, and these are all really, really safe things with a simplistic, you know, concept that there's like, a, it's like an entry level point. And if, if you can teach the people around you that basic, then that reserves the advanced uh, practice for only what's necessary. And a lot of the problems are avoided before they ever become critical. Right, and that's a big problem with our healthcare system is that we put such a huge load on things like emergency rooms. And I remember when I was in uh, SF Medic School, we were so th- everybody was so thrilled, all the instructors were, because emergency medicine was a fairly recent and new specialty. And now, you know, you look at it, and it's just pretty much gatekeepers, and they're people who, you know, getting people with, you know, they have a cold to come in there and they want some medication because they don't have medical insurance, they've got to be treated, and you get all of this just really bad issues that have happened to our, our health care system because it's set up so insanely in some ways that, that, that it would make so much sense to work with plant medicine, to work with the community level. Like you talked about plantain. That's one of the rare exceptions that is really more of a power food. In fact, of course, as you know, it's edible. Although, but it really, in many ways, is one of those that's up in terms of, of effectiveness, uh, almost comparable to the plants you find up near the po- poison end of the spectrum. Correct. It's, it's, it's an it's amazing, amazing thing. And it's good food for your livestock on top of it. It's like... It and comfrey and calendula are like my three that I think of as being like gifts, like they're safe and they're effective and they all have these multifunctional capabilities. Well, exactly. I mean, plantain, you know, the one side that's so good about it, and we're talking about, uh, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria is bicolin in, in plantain in high amounts. And that's actually something pharmaceutical companies are looking at because as an adjuvant, it breaks down biofilms. So we talk about 
bacteria that are resistant to this or that, but they're really, there's, there's different states that, that bacteria, two different states that bacteria live in, and the state that they really normally live in when they're an infection in your body is in a biofilm state, especially gram-positive. So bicolin and, and, and plantain containing that, amongst other plants that do, is incredibly good at breaking down and inhibiting the communication between bacteria that form those biofilms, layers. So it's great for that. And then you mentioned comfrey. Well, it's also got a lantern, just like comfrey. It's a great tissue proliferative. And it's also got uh, alcubin in it, which is a great liver protectant, just like milk thistle is. So, you know, plantain is just a huge spectrum of, of medicine right there, if you know. And again, this is a plantago species. For those who don't know, we're not talking about the banana. This is a plantain that grows. There's 250 species, and all of them around the world are good. Yeah, and I, I noticed you pronounce it the way you pronounce the banana one, and I think it's a very regional thing. If you're from the northeast, it's planted, and if you're from the south, it's from it's plantain. <laughs> I guess yeah. I've retained that even though I've lived here for like uh, about, I guess, 20 years now. Um, but it's the same plant. Yeah, and it is an amazing plant. And like I said, this is something that I learned when I was a kid, and it's, it's sad that our children aren't learning these things anymore. You have an owl, you go put a Band-Aid on it or go to the doctor or what have, or have you, instead of like here is something that exists right in your backyard that can solve this problem or at least mitigate this problem. Absolutely. I mean, my kids grew up with not having any choice. You know, they had pretty much had to use herbs. And it, and it was funny how by the time they were teenagers, it was totally normal for my kids to come and say, hey, dad, my, uh, you know, my friend's got this or that. Can you do something for it? And friends, it's funny how I, I always expected, especially as teenagers, you know, they didn't want to have anything to do with their dad. And, and in a lot of ways, you know, they did fit that role too, that, of course. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny how their, how their friends were totally open to it. And I say, you know, and of course, I would never treat somebody else's kid you know, or work with them with herbs without having having permission to do so. But the fact that they would be so open to it always blew my mind, and it was because they grew up with it, and it worked every time. It worked even for things like a broken collarbone, or you know, fixing fixing knitting uh, deep you know wounds and deep uh, you know cellulitis and things like that. You know, I, we didn't go to ERs, or if I did, it was just to get validation and verification of what you know we needed an X-ray, for instance, on a collarbone, and at a doctor who had no idea how to really treat that collarbone and wanted to put my daughter in a sling and so that she could go wait for the entire weekend before going to an ortho consult and I told her look man it's figure eight bandage right now and then we're going to go back in there and x-ray it and she and I, I'll pay cash for the x-rays but let's get the bones lined up and she stomped out and I heard her talking on the phone to an ortho consult and she came back in about 10 minutes later and said okay um, you know what I think we should do is go ahead and put her in a figure eight bandage and then it's like okay yeah let's do it <laughs> Yeah, we could go into a whole episode just on stories with, with medical professionals, I'm sure, because I've got mine too. Uh, but one of the things I really like about you is the diversity that you bring uh, to to the table. The first time I met you, you were teaching people how to do throwing sticks and figure four uh, uh, dead drop uh, traps and things like that. Um, and you, you, you know, that's part of what you do, but you're into the medicine, the, the engineering, and all of these skills, urban and suburban. And you've broken it down into four specialties hunter-gatherer, combat medic, primitive engineer, and scout. Um, you know, what was the, the reason for that, and what does it do to, I guess, maybe make training more uh, efficient for students? Yeah, the, so the thing that that really does, I think, is just that. It may get, if they don't have this kind of a, of a way of categorizing, as humans, we like to categorize and subcategorize things. If they don't have it, it's just a big pile. It's just a big mess. And where I first got the idea of really needing to do this was when I used to teach survival, like you were talking about, figure four, dead drops and, and snares and that type of thing and fire making. And I used to teach that stuff to the military when I was in. I used to teach it to SWAT. You know, we do like a whole survival course for SWAT teams, and then we do tactics for them, teach them that stuff. And so we, I teach that kind of stuff. And I started just really feeling like an idiot. You know, I'd get up there and and, and I'd teach them all how to do a bow drill fire, and that was it. You know, and I'd feel like. Like it was just a circus sideshow trip trick, and I feel like this idiot that just was parading around this absolutely unconnected skill to anything else. And I started realizing, you know, all of this stuff fits together. And I tell people when they come into my class, I don't care what you do for a day job. I don't care if you've got a, you know, if you're in a work in a cubicle farm as a programmer, or if you work out on a farm. It doesn't matter. This if this information and the way that we teach it does not 
cha- change your life, touch you in some way, make you closer to understand that you need to live a little closer to the earth, a little more sustainable, be a little more self-aware, whatever, it doesn't matter what your background is, then you're wasting your time here and I'll refund your money. And, you know, I never had to do that. But the point is that it all fits together then and these specialties are what make it fit together, not just from the standpoint of an individual learning them, but more importantly, in my opinion, the community aspect. You know, we do like a barter uh, uh, experiment that we've been doing now for seven months and we have a hundred people coming down there. That's all we can take. They bring down and the only rules are no cash allowed and it has to be sustainability related. So people are training, trading rabbits and seeds and tinctures and food and canned food, whatever they may be, hand tools. And it's huge. And these are the types of things, this and canning parties, those types of things where we realize, you know, this is all about community and without community, this, it will fall flat, and the people who are the kind of the one, the, the lone ranger survivalist types never even step foot in my school, and if they do, they don't last. They just, you know, they, they have to understand you're not going to do this by yourself. This isn't Hollywood. You're going to have to have other people around you, whether you like it or not. And so that, that's really the core that I think the specialty uh, approach here brings to it, too. Now, you do something that a lot of survival schools don't. In fact, I would say a lot of people that are into many of the things you are, like the primitive skills, the wilderness, the bushcrafting, all that, actually don't like. And that is you get into permaculture, agriculture, gardening, growing your own food, homesteading skills, all of this stuff where a lot of the uh, the bushcraft guys that are very good at what they do feel like, well, I can just go out there and kill something and eat it. Um, in fact, one of my good friends, Dave Canterbury, he's just like, I don't get the garden, Jack. I just don't get it. He's not anti-garden. He's just like, what are you doing with a vegetable? You know, I like meat. And I like meat, too. That's why I raise chickens. They're more efficient. But where do you see that fitting in uh, along the lines, too, with community and, and, and working together? Yeah, I think it's absolutely crucial. You have to be able to, first of all, there's no fat of the land. And I have an immense amount of respect for Dave Canterbury. He's a great hunter. I mean, and I know, you know, I'm good friends with Michael Hawk. We went to the Q course together, and, and I know Michael's a good friend of Dave's. And just, you know, really respect the guy. Uh, but, you know, the problem is that I would say to that is, you know, there's not going to be food out there for, for the population we have. There already isn't. The fat of the land is gone. You know, Ewell Gibbons, who was in my opinion, one of the great foragers and understood, I mean, he wasn't just about plants, too. I mean, the guy could, could, he could hunt, he could trap, he understood how to get food from places, and he tried to do a walkabout back in the 60s and gave up after about a week and said, there's just no fat of the land left. There isn't. We, you know, it's not like back in the day when Lewis and Clark wrote about the fact, you know, on the Salmon River, literally, you could not throw a spear in that water without coming back with a fish. It was impossible not to come back with a salmon. And that, and that kind of, a, of abundance was everywhere. Now, you know, good luck. We, you're in the got to understand how to grow food. You absolutely have to. And so, yeah, the hunter-gatherer uh, in, our, in our specialties is, has the wilderness side, which is just that, the Dave Canterbury approach. And then it has the urban side, which is the gorilla gardening and the raised bed gardening and the aquaponics and all of that. And we're doing it all the time. And, what, and that comes down to everything that relates to having to grow a garden and, and understanding you know, rainwater collection and, 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 how to, and how to compost and black soldier fly and vermiculture, all of those things to really provide our own food. And, of course, we live that here, too. We grow our own rabbits, and I have tilapia. We have a hot tub that's turned into a tilapia uh, farm, really. And so I, you know, so I love that kind of stuff personally anyway, and I kind of grew up with a mom who made me do it. So I kind of, you know, whether I liked it or not, I, I became, I had a green thumb just from her making me have to work in the garden every day. And I really appreciate that fact about my childhood because I think without that, you miss that link between man and plant. And, and the same thing goes for herbalists. I tell herbalists, look, you know, I love to wildcraft, and that's very important. And some of the wildcrafted herbs are very potent, more potent than maybe what you can even grow, and certainly more potent than what you might buy. But the point is, if you know, to get really get that connection with the plants, you need to grow them a little bit. You need to understand how they grow and, and what their life cycle is about. And even that, I grow a bunch of plants that wouldn't grow here naturally, like neem and stuff like that, that that's uh, more tropical, because I'm, I'm right about 8A, between 8A and 8B, you know, somewhere in there in terms of zone. zone. So um, I, I grow these plants that otherwise I couldn't, wouldn't have, and I find that by doing that, I get in, I really understand a lot more about what that plant is all about. It goes beyond just even understanding the chemicals in the sto- soil or any of that. There is some kind of relationship that we have with our natural world that we've co-evolved with for tens of thousands of years. And so growing that food is a way to understand that. And secondly, my final point on that is just that 
our our culture is so disconnected that I think it's the I think it's the savior of maybe our species if we could at least understand that our food doesn't grow on the inside of a styrofoam box from McDonald's, but rather it's actually an animal that had to die for it and that we have to take the life of that animal. And it's not that it's, you know, it's not that that's a bad thing, but I read a naturalist once who said, you know, rabbits are prey. They understand that and they're born with them with that. They would just appreciate a thank you. You know, I mean, that's really what it kind of comes down to for me, you know, so I I don't know if that answered your question. No, it, it definitely does, because I mean, my experience with doing some wilderness training has always been I can survive out here, but boy, it's tough. Um, and my, my experience has also always been, if I had one or two people with me, it might even get a little bit easier, but there's less to go around. But if I had to survive out here with 50 people, we would starve. Yeah. And I think you're, you're looking at numbers in communities of that larger, larger, to get through some of what we may have to deal with. Um, and, and that's just a, a fundamental reality. So the fact that one person can, can make it doesn't really matter because what I've always said to people that think, I'll just bug out to the national forest or whatever. You won't be the only person that thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> you, you won't be there. By, I know you go backpacking and you go for miles and you never see anybody or anything, but if, if resources are really that thin, um, you know, it makes me think of my, my grandfather's stories about the depression. One day I found these rat traps with holes drilled in them. And I said, well, what are the holes there for? These big, giant, like, they're made out of oak. I've never seen a, a rat trap like this before. And he goes, them were squirrel traps. I said, ah. what the heck did you, what do you mean? He said, you take a nail and put it through that hole and nail it to a tree, and you put peanut butter on it, and you set it, and you catch squirrels with it. I said, how'd they work? He said, good for two years. Interesting. Because after two years, there were barely any squirrels left to trap that way. Right. Because everybody was doing it. And I I don't think people realize the pressure that the limited resources we have today would come under. That's right. Absolutely. And so a lot of the the kind of the, the primal living type folks will say, you know, well, the downfall of man was the invention of agriculture 10,000 years ago or whatever. And they may be right. I don't know. But certainly it was the license to be overpopulated that we've done to this point. And you're absolutely right. You get a community of 50 people and in, in the resources that we have right now, you know, good luck feeding them with what's growing out there, you know, on its own in the wild because we've, we've, we've depleted it. It's just not there anymore. Oh, as we finish up, I want to talk a little bit about what well, you've kind of mentioned a couple of times about uh, Nicaragua. And you're doing some herbal uh, medic sustainable health care expeditions down there. Uh, what, what exactly is the reasoning? Is it just to learn, or is there a larger vision? And do you think this would be able to work in the United States in underserved areas? I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, I don't care what they say about Obamacare. They don't have access to good medical care, not because it's, it's not, you know, available or affordable, because in many cases it just doesn't really exist. I agree, and I think that, uh, and that, yeah, to answer your question, um, all of those things. So the, the Nicaragua concept is really, there's about three or four things that I want to get out of that. One is, of course, as I mentioned already, superior real-world training for my students. So when they come back, they've actually had to make it work for other people where their reputation's on the line, they're, you know, they just actually have to do it for real, for people that are actually going to be drinking that water, for instance, if they're doing that. And they are, they're going to be the first ones drinking it, too, the engineers, for instance, if they're doing that. And then the herb, herbal medics, you know, to understand we can treat people at this volume, if we had a post-disaster situation, we can take in, a, you know, literally me and three other herbalists, uh, you know, their students running both my apothecary and helping me in the, in the clinic can, can get through 100 to 120 people in a day, and everybody walks out of there with something that's going to help them, and it does. So that's the first step is that kind of confidence builder and real-world uh, hands-on experience, and that's for all four specialties, not just the two I mentioned. The second is a a prototype or a proving of the fact that herbal medicine and orthodox medicine and even surgical medicine can coexist and can fill the full void of what's what's out there. And, and what I mean by that is in June when we go down, we'll be setting up a field surgical clinic. I want my students to understand how to do that, all the things that go into that. And then I, the, and I want to be able to have a place where, they, where we can have some minor surgery and we'll, of course, have a major surgical clinic as well where we lined up some patients maybe three or four months ahead of time for our ortho surgeons and so, so you know, for people that have like really horrible things in, that, that we can fix. So that's the other side of things is showing the side-by-side. So we're working side-by-side with docs and PAs and NPs, and a lot of them are coming to my classes. I started out a lot of this stuff 
teaching survival to docs, you know, because they would go into post-disaster areas and they couldn't even start a fire. And they get there and all their gear is held up in, in a port somewhere waiting for a bribe or got hijacked on the way by a warlord somewhere who decided he wanted it. And all they've got to work with is just a, a handful of things. So, so we're taking care of all of that. We're a self-sustaining team. Our hunter-gatherers are taking care of our own food and medicine. We're taking care of, of everybody around us. So all of that is, is part of it as well. And, 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 of course, learning how to work as a team. And then you mentioned the, in, uh, the underserved areas. That's exactly right. We, have a, we just purchased a school bus for the, uh, the Herbal Medics did, our nonprofit did, a, a large school bus that we're converting. Our primitive engineers are converting it to be a, a number of things. One is it can be a, it's a mobile clinic, a mobile herbal clinic. Another is it's actually we're setting up prototype uh, gardening, uh, sustainable gardening things. And they're not big, but just big enough to be able to show this is the concept of a wicking bed. This is the concept of aquaponics so that we can fold down the sides, put out the you know the front and have a class and show people and start community gardens in that way. We've also got a place in there kind of like Ikea you know, furniture, you know, rearrangement type of thing that we've got set up in there or that we're working on so that we can sleep six or seven students in there as a mobile team so we can do that. And it's also even a bug out bus if you want to put it that way. So we'll have our, our, all our UV, all our, um, our uh, 12 volt um, um, solar, 12 volt wind on there as well. We have uh, all, you know, all the things that go into making this bus sort of a self sustainable mobile herbal clinic to, so that we can go into these underserved areas. And that includes even automotive stuff. There's a lot of these places. Uh, especially in San Antonio, you know, you go into some of these poor places, uh, especially Latinos that are, you know, they have one car for the whole family and they don't. And if that car breaks down, that might mean that there's a loss of a job or a loss of food on the table for that week. So just even being able to help people with that and show them how to tr- how to replace an alternator or go and get one, you know, and put them in, have a budget to be able to help out with that. So that's a really big part of it. Also, we're looking at the colonias down in uh, on the border of Texas and Mexico, where it's literally third world diseases you'll find there, even though it's on the U.S. side. So all of that stuff, I think, is is a part of the big whole of being able to say, yep, we're trying to help people and we want to help people, but at the same time, we're getting some amazing training that you would not get anywhere else, not even in the military and not even in Peace Corps, because there you're subject to what their idea of what your training should be, and it's, you know, it's based on what their agenda is. Here, our agenda is really just better training and helping people. It's pretty simple. Yeah, absolutely. I, I said something yesterday um, that I'd like your thoughts on as we get ready to close here, um, about why we have the need to be taking care of our neighbors, and I don't think a lot of people get this. And what I said was, if your neighbor's not safe, you're not safe. Not to fool yourself into believing just because you're prepared that you're safe if your community as a whole isn't safe, because you're not. Yeah, that goes into the whole concept of leadership and accountability, that fourth A, and all of that kind of stuff, too. And yes, I mean, it's like, you know, you can take it all the way back to that old saying about uh, Hitler, you know, um, and, and, and Germany during that period of time. You know, they came for the such and such, and nobody said anything. And then they came for these this group, and nobody said anything. And it's just that. You know, it's like whatever that case may be, um, and certainly in the case of security, and that may be whether it's a government, that may be whether it's just a complete lack of rule of law. But if you cannot band together as a group of people and understand your strength in that, then, you know, divided, you will fall. And if I was a bad guy, if I wanted to be a bad guy, and I saw people that weren't able to work together, yeah, I guarantee you, guess who would be my first target? It wouldn't, it wouldn't be the people that were working together and understood how to work together to create security. It would be the people who had no idea that, that this is like the weak you know, part of the herd that's just fall out, fell outside and the wolves are, are chasing the herd and it's the people that can't provide for themselves as a group of people and take care of their own that are going to be the first targets always. Uh, it, it, right now we're at the end, so I would like you to you know, have an opportunity to tell people how they can learn more about training with you and uh, let us know like what type of training is available. Because you talk about some pretty intensive training, some long-term stuff, some pretty big commitments. Is that the only type of training you do, or do you do training that's you know like a one or two day course as well? Yeah, th- thank you. That's that's a great question, and absolutely we do we do it all. You know, so we have classes that are one or two days. So we have, like I said, mentioned before, we have core classes and we have electives. Our electives are generally shorter classes that if you just want to come in and get your feet wet, they're for everybody, and that could be anything from just a one day or even a two-hour class on, on herbalism in some way or another. You know, I do a, an herbal antibiotics kind of class. That's kind of a misnomer, but that's what I call it just for, for language purposes. And, you know, things like that, that's like a two-hour class all the way to, you know, 
making baskets and containers. You know, containers are a huge part of wilderness and primitive survival. And anybody who doesn't know that, please take the container challenge and, and go 24 hours without using a container, and you'll understand what I mean. But all the way to blacksmithing, we have an amazing blacksmith and knife maker. The guy is just gold. And it's not just blacksmithing and knife making, but he goes all the way from classes on how to make your own charcoal and bellows and forge and out of nothing to being able to harvest farm equipment and what kinds of steel you'd use there all the way to literally next year we're going to get into iron ore. We're going to start talking about smelting and working with that all the way up to folded steel, Damascus steel swords. So, I mean, you, you know, you can go the whole spectrum or you could just pop in and cherry pick the pieces you want. So we've got lots of classes like that. And if you go to our site, our, our website, The Human Path, it's thehumanpath.com, The Human Path, Dot com. You know, you'll see I've got online. I've got an online herbalism course that's about a hundred-hour course. It's really good. I mean, that'll give you the basics. I can't do anything as well as I can in person, of course. I can't give you scenarios, but I can give you that online course. I've got webinars once a month that you can plug into, and I can get, I can have you come down and actually, when you have time, come down and plug into the programs we have at our school. If you've already taken the online course, that gets you a little bit of a head start into stuff that you couldn't otherwise do. I've we've got I've got a herbal first aid kit that we sell online. It's a $250 kit that's got a trauma kit and it's got an herbal kit and it, it covers a lot of stuff in it. It's uh, really good. I've got a field manual that I, that I sell. And then we've got all of the longer courses for people that live way outside of Texas and want to come in for a 10 day course or a five day course or whatever that might be. But, you know, anywhere in that spectrum, you know, we got like land navigation is a big one. A map reading, we do an orienteering class. That's a one day, but we also do a full weekend. So we do that one day basic class. And in the morning you're learning, you know, lecture in the afternoon, you're out finding the points on a, on a, on a you know as a as kind of a we set up sort of a competition actually in the evening and the night you're learning land navigation if you want to stay for that and the next day if you want to stay for it we have an advanced class so there's always something building on something else and you can pick from an hour or two all the way up to a week or two very cool sam and i want to thank you for being here today with us for all your insight and your work to educate people uh, for your service to our country uh, ongoing and prior uh, in official and non-official capacities, both. Uh, I'll make sure I have links to your website in today's show notes. And just again, thank you for being here, and you're always welcome back. All you got to do is fill out the form, and Dorothy will get you set up. Well, thank you very much, Jack. Thanks for having me back, and it's always a pleasure to be able to talk on your show. All right, folks, and with that, this has been Jack Spirico today, along with Sam Kaufman, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares.